to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, the second part of verse 18 through verse 26. And just to refresh your memories, last time uh, we looked at the section just before that in which Paul uh, rejoiced, uh, even in the midst of that cloud, the storm clouds of opposition that he was facing, and he was filled with rejoicing. And so we come now, we continue that theme of rejoicing as we come to this next section, uh, verses 18, the second part of verse 18 to verse 26. I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Lord God, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that the same spirit that, that illumined these words, the same spirit that, that breathed these words, would breathe into our hearts their meaning and their application, that we might live by them and that they might be planted deep in us to bear fruit of transformation and fruit of change that would be to your glory and for our good. So, Lord, give us ears to hear them correctly. Give us eyes to see and perceive correctly. Give us hearts to receive correctly, O Lord, that we would hear nothing less and nothing more than what you would have us to hear, that I would say nothing more and nothing less than what you would have me to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You may be seated. The story is told about three men who died at the same time. And they all arrived at the same time at the pearly gates of heaven before Peter. And, and Peter began talking to them and he asked them what they would most like to hear, what, what comments, what remarks they'd most like to hear at their funerals, which were just about to take place. And, and the first man said, well, I, I'd like to hear that I was a great doctor and a good, good family man. And the second man said, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to hear them say that I was 
that I was a wonderful husband and that as a teacher I, I had an impact on, on so many lives and changed the lives of so many students. That's what I like to hear them say. And the third man said, well, you know, to be honest, I, what I'd most, what I'd really like to hear them say is, is uh, hey, look, he's moving. <laughs> I guess I thought that was funnier than you all did, but hey, all right. <laughs> all right, so the story captures, I think, the prevailing sentiment about death, doesn't it? You know, most people see death as a grim reality to be fought, a, a necessary evil to be endured, or a tragic loss to be feared. But in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul says something that flies in the face of this prevailing sentiment. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we have to remember that the context in which uh, Paul writes these words, remember he's changed to a Roman guard awaiting his trial before the Roman emperor Nero. And so he doesn't know for sure if Nero will release him or kill him. Those are two very real, very distinct possibilities. He doesn't know for sure if he will go on living or if he's going to go to his execution. And so he ponders these two possibilities. And this text is really a, a record of his own inner dialogue, his own inner musings, his ponderings, his reflections on these things as he tries to sort them all out. And the conclusion that he comes to is that really he's in a win-win situation. That whether he lives or dies, it is a win, and God is to be praised. And it's out of this, this inner dialogue and reflection that Paul writes his now famous words, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And what beautiful words these are, and, and, and what freedom and what joy in these words. And don't we all want to live with that same attitude, with that same mentality? Don't we want that sentiment to be our sentiment? Don't we want to find what Paul had found, that one thing that makes life worth living and death worth dying? This statement of Paul, these famous words, really lie at the, at the center of this text, both Structurally, I believe there's a structure here that, that, that is like a spotlight that focuses on the statement. So from a structural standpoint, they lie at the center, and they're also at the center theologically. And so as we study this text this morning, we're going to focus our attention on this single statement and see how the, kind of the rest of the text feeds into it. But we're going to focus on this statement and the, the two parts of that statement, and then we're going to see at the end what what is the, the foundational truth that lies underneath it. So let's begin with the first part of that statement, to live is Christ. What that meant for Paul was that his whole life on earth was consumed with Christ and exalting Christ to others, that Christ was the object of his love and affection. Christ was the subject of his preaching and his ministry. Christ was the goal of his labor, and Christ was the joy of his existence. Paul elaborates on the statement in verse 22. So he says in verse 21, to live is Christ. And then he gives sort of concrete expression as to what that means in verse 22. He says, uh, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
And what Paul means by fruitful labor is the kind of labor that will result in more and more people coming to Christ and growing in their Christ-likeness. That word fruitful links back to just a few verses earlier in verse 11 where Paul prayed that the Philippians uh, would be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says that to live is Christ. He means that as long as he has breath to breathe, he will go on doing the very thing that lies at the center of his aspirations, which is knowing Christ and seeing Christ formed in others. We see the same thing at the end of our text where Paul's inner dialogue leads to the conviction that God will, in fact, spare him and allow him to go on living. So as he sort of wrestles through the two possibilities before him, death or life, and as he works through these things, he comes at the end of the text to this sort of conviction that for the sake of the Philippians, God is going to allow him to live. And he says in verses 25 and 26, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for, for what? For your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. In other words, I am convinced that God will allow me to live through this trial. And in my living, I will continue my fruitful labor of helping you grow in your faith so that your boasting in Christ may abound. To live is Christ. Paul says. And it means that he no longer lives for himself and for his selfish desires, but that his, his whole aim in life is to serve Christ and his kingdom. As he said to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me to live is Christ. It means that Christ is his alpha and omega, his beginning and his end. It means that Christ is the whole sum and substance of his existence. Christ is the sun around which his whole life revolves. Christ is the heartbeat of his ministry and the wellspring of his passions and the gravitational pull of his desires. As long as there is blood coursing through my veins, Paul says, I will live and breathe for Christ. I will delight in knowing Christ more intimately and I will labor to have Christ formed in others so that through it all Christ may be exalted. And let me ask you this morning, do you have such an all-consuming desire for Christ that you can say with him to live is Christ? Among the ruins of ancient Carthage, there is an inscription carved by a Roman soldier that says, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. And all these years later, nothing has changed, has it? There were those t-shirts that were popular a long time ago, I think back when I was in high school, you can still get them today, and maybe you've seen them before, maybe you've had a t-shirt like this that says... Uh, Whatever you want, it says, uh, hunting is life, the rest is just details. Or golf is life, the rest is just details. Fishing is life, the rest is just details. Gardening, whatever, whatever it is, you can get a t-shirt that says anything that is your passion. This is life, the rest is just details. See, it's still the same story. Life still consists, for many of us, of these same pursuits of earthbound 
treasures. Oswald Sanders once told a story about an Indian evangelist who loved Jesus. And he traveled from, from village to village, just traveled all around, all day long, traveling, sharing the gospel message. And he came to one particular village late one afternoon, uh, and, and, you know, his passion was to tell the good news of Jesus. So he came to this, this village, and he began to, to do that, to share with him the good news of Jesus. But, they, but they, were, they were not wanting to hear it. They were angry. They were belligerent. They were tired. They were just not wanting to hear anything that this evangelist was saying. And so they drove him out of town. And by this point, because he'd been traveling uh, day upon day, and it was late in the afternoon, it was turning to evening, so he was so tired and he was so discouraged that he found a tree on the outside of town, and he just laid down underneath that tree and he fell asleep. And early the next morning, he was startled awake by a large crowd of people standing around him and standing over top of him. And all the village leaders were there, and they were looking down upon him. And he woke up, and he saw them, and he thought that they were going to kill him. But instead, they said to him, tell us more about this Jesus. And they could see the confused look on his face. And, they, and so they explained to him that their change of heart came when they saw his bloody feet. And they reasoned that if someone was willing to walk all those miles and, and to go all that way and to keep on walking on bloody feet just to share a message, well, it must be a message worth hearing. Are we so enthralled with Christ that we would walk for miles on bloody feet just to tell others about him? You see, like Paul, this, this Indian evangelist so had Christ at the center of his life and the center of his aspirations that it was his driving ambition to share him with others no matter what the cost. To live is Christ. But Paul doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and to die is gain. Now, of all the, the, the countercultural things that Paul has written in his letters, and he's written a lot of countercultural things, this one may, may be at the top of the list. Because again, the prevailing sentiment about dying is that it's a tragic loss, that it's a, a grim evil to be resisted and feared. And that, that's, in fact, what moved Dylan Thomas to write as his father was dying and to, to write about death. Uh, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What can Paul possibly mean when he says to die is gain? Well, the only way that death can be gained as if you attain something in death that is of greater value, that is more profitable than what you could attain in life. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. You see, the, the gain for Paul is Christ. Just it, that's the only thing. The gain is Christ himself. Paul knows that death would bring him more fully and more completely into the presence of Christ. That the moment a believer dies, he goes to be with the Lord. That's what Paul's gain is. When Paul is pondering in his own mind the, 
the two possibilities of, of life or death. He says that he's torn between the two. He sees them both as wins, but, but they're wins for different reasons. To go on living would be better for the Philippians because he would continue in his fruitful ministry among them, and so they would be served. Christ would be made known more fruitfully among them. That's a win. But to die, well, to die would be his personal preference because, because that would be the biggest win for him because he would attain the desire of his heart, which is to be with Christ. So Paul puts it this way in verse 23. He says, I'm torn between the two. I I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It's an awkward expression in Greek. It means literally very much better. It is not just better. Paul wants to emphasize the, the extent, the degree to which it is better. It is very much better but it's more necessary for you that I remain. The word depart that Paul uses here has vivid connotations. It had sort of a a range of meaning and was used in different contexts. But one of the meanings was that it was often used for, for breaking up camp and heading home. So imagine soldiers who are fighting at war and they've been fighting for a long time and, and as they're fighting out at war, they're, they're, they're living in tents and they're stationed. They, they've set up camp and so they got their rations of food and they got their sleepless nights and they got their, their makeshift shelters and tents and they've been living out there in the elements, going off to war, not knowing what's to come and not knowing if they're going to live or die the next day. And the war is over and the battle is won. And what do they do? They, they, break, up, they break up the camp. They, they pack up all their things and they head home. Imagine the joy in that moment of leaving that campsite behind, leaving it all behind and heading home. The battle is over. The war is over. The the victory's been won. I'm heading home. Well, that's how Paul describes death. I desire to depart and be with Christ, he says, which is better by far. I can't wait to break up camp and head home. When the battle is over and, and, and the burdens are over and, and the uncertainties are over and, and all that's left is Christ. Paul makes a similar point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says that this life is like living in an earthly tent. And he says that for while we are in this tent, he says we groan and are burdened because we wish to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, which means we, we long for our resurrection bodies. We long to be with Christ. In 17th century Scotland, there was a man named Richard Cameron. And he was a member of the, a group called the, the Scottish Covenanters. And the, the Covenanters were a group that resisted the state's attempts to control the church. And so the, the state was trying to say, this is the way the church has to function. And it had gotten to the point where it wasn't anything close to resembling the biblical idea of church. And so this group, the, the Covenanters, uh, resisted that state control. And so they, they affirmed their freedom to, to worship as the Bible told them to worship. So their freedom to proclaim Christ and their freedom to study and to read the scriptures and their freedom to gather together for worship. And of course, the state didn't like what they were about. 
and wanted to put an end to this group, and they would occasionally send out troops to find them. And on one occasion, they found Richard Cameron and a small little band of, of worshiping friends. And Richard at the time was 32 years old, and when the troops found him, they killed him. But it wasn't enough for them just to kill him. They wanted to make an example of him, and so they, they cut off his head and his hands and they, so they could bring them back as, and, and put them on display as trophies of war in Edinburgh. And on their way back to the city, they stopped at a jail where Richard's father was being held also for his convictions, his Christian convictions. And so Richard's father was being held in this jail, and they stopped at that jail to torment him. And so they, they went into the jail and went right up to, right up to him, and they, they displayed uh, his son's head and two hands on a sword and two daggers, and they said, do you recognize these? And his father took them upon his knee, and he bent over them, and he kissed them. And he said, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my dear sons. And then with tears in his eyes, he said this. He said, good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all of our days. You see, the soldiers were hoping to break him with crushing despair over the death of his son. And he was, of course, he was pierced deeply with grief. And that's what death does. And he was pierced with grief, but he was not broken. And even in his grief, his heart turns to praise. And how can that possibly be? How could he, he praise God in that moment? How do you do that? How is that even possible to do that? Well, he praised God because he knew that what Paul said was true, that for those who are in Christ, death is gain. There's no other way that he could react that way in that moment. And again, I ask the question, do we live that way? Do we think that way? You know, because by and large, I don't think that many Christians do. Because if we really believe what Paul says, then, then our whole life would show it. And while the rest of the world is driven by fear and thrown into despair and reaching for whatever humanism can muster in the face of death, we would be unflinching in our hope and unwavering in our joy and, and unflustered in our fearlessness. And I believe that God is calling us as Christians to this Pauline, otherworldly, Christ-centered confidence in the face of death. He's calling us to live as those who not only say, but who truly believe and live out as if it is true that to die is gain. John Piper has said that the New Testament presents a radical way to be a Christian, and we miss it in America because we are so saturated with our culture of ease and comfort and escape and entertainment. We have so adapted to this culture of comfort, he says, that New, New Testament Christianity is unintelligible to us. And I think that's largely true when it comes to death. 
That we're, we're often just not that, we're not that radically different from the world. We're often driven by the same desires or by the same fears and reaching for the same solutions. We, we need the Holy Spirit to sweep through the church, to awaken us from our slumber, to cleanse us from our worldliness, and to create within us a renewed spirit that stands boldly with Paul and says to die is gain. That brings us then to the heart of the matter. What is the foundational truth underneath these words of Paul? What, what, what is the, the driving force behind his mentality? Don't, don't you want what Paul has found? Don't you want to have that same mentality, that same attitude in the face of death and in life? Don't you want that? Because I do. And, and I found myself convicted and challenged as I studied this text this morning, and that's why I'm sharing that with you. If I'm going to be challenged, then you're going to be challenged as well. I'm not going to be alone in my conviction. What is the driving force behind Paul's mentality? You see, if we uncover the foundational truth, then we will know what it takes to be able to say with him to live as Christ for me, to me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The foundational truth is simply this, knowing Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe. is very simple, isn't it? That's the one thing that's really at the heart of the matter. It was because Christ was Paul's supreme treasure that all of his life was consumed with Christ. And it was because Christ was his supreme treasure that death was gain. If Christ himself is not what is most satisfying to you, then, then to live will be something less than Christ, and to die will be loss. You see, as Paul faces the uncertainties of his trial before Nero, he says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Christ was everything to him. Christ was his prize. Christ was his treasure. And therefore, in life and in death, it was his central concern to have Christ exalted, which means to have Christ put on display as the greatest thing. To exalt Christ, to see Christ exalted, is to have him put on display as the greatest thing. When you know Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. If what you treasure is earthly, then life will be the empty pursuit of fading delights with, with ever-increasing emptiness and boredom and tiredness, and death will be loss. As Alistair Begg put it, if the main source of your fulfillment is in your marriage, if what thrills your soul is your kids rather than Jesus, if all of your identity is wrapped up in your position or your prominence or your influence, then the prospect of going to see Jesus is really nothing much, you see. Because you'll have to leave behind what you truly treasure. To know Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe is to know him as the only water that can quench your, th your deepest thirst. 
the only bread that can fill your hungry soul, the only name worth seeking, the only message worth preaching, the only hope worth pursuing, the only teacher worth following, the only master worth worshiping, and the only word worth receiving. Everything else is just dust on the scale. That's exactly what Paul said, isn't it? I considered all garbage, Paul said. Everything else, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He put everything else in life on one column, all the delights and all the pleasures and all the, the good gifts that God has given, put it all in one column, put Christ on the other. This outweighs them all by far. This is all, Paul says, they're good things, great things even, but it's garbage compared to this. When you know Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so again, I ask the question, do we know him that way? Do we know Christ as the supreme satisfier of our souls, or have we so filled ourselves with the junk food of lesser goods that we have developed what John Piper calls a suicidal preference of tin over gold, foundations of sand over solid rock, games in the gutter over a holiday at the sea? Have we so gorged ourselves on the earthly gifts that we've stopped craving the giver? Have we exchanged the glory of the supreme treasure for the imposter glory of lesser goods? When you know Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we know Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe when we stop gorging ourselves on crumbs and seek him as the true bread from heaven. When the people of Israel were on the verge of entering into the promised land, God gave Moses a song. But it wasn't a song of celebration. It was a prophetic song of warning. Because God knew that the hearts of his people would grow numb to him in the land. He knew that they would forsake him and seek satisfaction in lesser things. He knew what was going to come of them. He knew that, that they'd come into this beautiful land, that he would provide a land flowing with milk and honey, and they would so fatten themselves on the milk and the honey that they would forget their craving for him. And so God gave Moses a song to be sung for generations to come as a witness against them and as a, as a means to call them back. And this is what the song said, or at least part of the song said. Jeshurun, which is an affectionate, it was a name for Israel. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, filled with food. They became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their Savior. They angered him with their detestable idols. They deserted the rock who fathered them. They forgot the God who gave them birth. And therefore, God says, I will heap calamities on them and spend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. You see, we see in these verses the heart of a God, not who delights in afflicting his people, but the heart of a God who will do anything to bring them back. A God who sends calamity and plague and disease as a means of turning his people back to him. Might that be what God is doing in us? 
And will we heed the call and turn back to him? Let us stop fattening ourselves on the food of the land and pursue Christ as the only food that truly satisfies. Let us crave Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe. For then and only then can we say with Paul, for to me, not just for you, Paul, but not just for the church in general, but for to me, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple, to live is Christ. And to die, well, to die is gain. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer, Lord, speak to our hearts and call us back to you. Oh Lord, breathe within us and work within us. Oh Lord, a renewed passion, a renewed commitment to see you as the supreme treasure of the universe. And forgive us, O Lord, for the ways in which we have so filled ourselves with lesser goods that we've stopped craving you, the true bread. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning. Oh, Lord, give us cultivated hearts that respond to your word and to your call to draw us back to you. And Lord, may we see that it's in Christ alone that we find our true satisfaction, that Christ alone is our true treasure, that Christ alone is our is our hope and our joy. Oh Lord, may we go from this place saying with Paul that to me, to live is Christ and to die would be gain. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.